um, this is Abe, and I just want to let you guys know that we have a store, and uh, you can buy t-shirts, uh, you can buy, Mike's got this rap album. Rap tracks? Yeah, he's working on it. You got rap tracks, you got some uh, audio books mm-hmm. on there, and we're adding more all the time. All a la carte? Yeah, and we just felt like, aside from me just tweeting... We should just mention it on a podcast so mm-hmm. people know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can check out the Small Beans merch store. Please do. We put a lot of work into it, and there's a lot of talented artists who did as well at smallbeans.bigcartel.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, you know, patronizing us on patreon.com slash smallbeans always really helps us out. Even if it's just a dollar a month, it's a big help. And if you can't uh, scrape up any cash and you don't want any t-shirts or wraps blasted at you, we would love a five-star review on iTunes. So if you're a Small Beans fan and you'd like to support us, these are the ways in which to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. What are we doing with our life? Recording. Hey. An episode of the Cohen Brothers, brother. Hey. We are the titular eponymous brothers. Uh, I'm the one that's Michael Swain. I'm the Abe Epperson one. The one who sits here silently and has been on every episode, but you didn't know it, is our evil triplet, Hellbent on Revenge. We'll let you talk. Shut up, Greg. Don't talk. No one likes you, Greg. Um... Yeah, Greg says hey, and today, speaking of how we treat Greg, we're talking about (laughs) Intolerable Cruelty, the Coen Brother Brothers film from 2003, follow-up to what? What was our last damn episode? Man Who Wasn't There. Yeah. Yeah. The movie that didn't lodge in my memory. Um, I actually, I did did think there was a lot to dig into, and I really enjoyed it, but much in the way that he's not there, and it's black and white. Like, if I list the Cohen canon off the top of my head, sometimes it slips my mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's uncertain. That's for <laughs> sure. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Uh, it's about the uncertainty principle, as we talked about. That's true. <laughs> I See, I already forgot the You already themes. forgot. It, well, it has been a long time. I'll have to go back and re-listen We've been doing episode. other podcasts. Yeah. That's true. We recorded those in a batch a while back, but we're back in it, baby. Yeah, baby. Um, Intel Cruelty. Intel Cruel. There's no good way to shorten it. Intolerable Cruelty, uh, produced by Brian Grazer, who is, if you'll probably know him from mostly, he's like... Um, Imagine he works with Ron Howard. Abe Epperson is to Michael Swain as Ron Howard is to Brian Grazer, mm-hmm. as Joel and Ethan Cohen are to one another. Yeah, mm-hmm. he, they're just like... Bud, buddies. Bud buddies. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it stars Catherine Zeta-Jones, George Clooney, Jeffrey Rush. Have they used Jeffrey Rush before? I don't think so. I don't think so. Cedric the Entertainer. Cedric in the there. Entertainer. Richard Jenkins. They have used before. Is this also the introduction of Richard Jenkins to Cohen Canon? I, I believe might. so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So good get. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Cohens adds a Richard Jenkins, and but they will use him again. And Billy Bob Thornton's back. Yeah. For like a short cameo, I would say. Yeah. Like he's in it, but it's He makes very... an impression. Yeah, I, he's I multiple scenes, scene. but yeah. yeah. In the same way that Jeffrey Rush like it's a very ensemble cast except for the main two. Uh Jeffrey Rush is used the bookend scenes. Yeah. yeah. And you see him once in the middle, but he basically just is homeless. That's all yeah. you established. Fans of the fans of the Coen Brothers will also know this movie is like one of the snoozers. I 
Wait, shut the fuck up. What? what do you mean? It's one of my favorite ones. It's one of your favorite ones? Is this... Okay, this is not a review podcast. This is going to be an interesting stretch of Coen Brothers. Because next is, is Lady yeah. Killers. And I usually find... Our whole ethos is as people are... If we're going to comment on art... Uh, and I think you'll hear this in one upsmanship in our other podcast as well. Analysis is more interesting, man. Yeah. Thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah. How yeah, many yeah. stars? Absolutely. Should I pay for it? Yeah. Um, but I do think it bears some discussion <laughs> of just like, well, is this one good though? Because up till now, every single one for my money, I came in knowing that we could just go, yeah, 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 it's good. We know it's good. Let's just start analyzing it. Right. But these two, some people think they're bad. Like they're the beginning yeah. of the Coen brothers having a slump. Right, right. I think that um, there's things that I would agree about that, but there's things that I w- like. I still, I still fight for my Coen Brothers, but it's like it's not in, it's not, it's in middle of the road to the lower end. Yeah, to me. but I wouldn't want you to like take off your objectivity glasses for the Coen Brothers. You know what I mean? We're yeah. not trying to like just root for them no matter what. <clears throat> we can say shit is bad if it's bad. Right. But I have always loved Intolerable Cruelty. I loved it on the first watch. I think it holds up alongside Big Lebowski burn after rating, mm-hmm. and I don't know why I think Do you think it feels think different than other Coen Brothers movies, or does it feel like no, on-brand I think it feels like a twin movie to Hudsucker Proxy, which I also mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, like many of the reviews I dove into for Intolerable Cruelty that came out at the time yeah. literally had the sentence like, like Hudsucker Proxy... They're trying to be cute and charming, but it just falls flat. And I'm like, oh, I think they're wrong on both counts, which is interesting because I know you disagree about Hudsucker Proxy. And for the life of me, if you're out there and you think Hudsucker Proxy is sterile, explain why in the comments, because I don't get why people find Hudsucker Proxy boring or sterile. It is not those things to me, nor is intolerable. I want to give you this uh, uh, critic quote even though we don't typically do that it feels like a sure. good time to do it which is ebert when it came out two and a half stars mm-hmm. so pretty middle, middle of the road, road. and he said of the movie the cones sometimes have a way of standing to one side of their work it's the puppet and they're the ventriloquists the puppet is sincere but the puppet master is wagging his eyebrows and the audience asking can you believe this stuff joel and ethan are bountifully gifted filmmakers but sometimes you want them to lay off the irony and climb down here with the groundlings. Yeah. So he's saying, I, it's got all, to me, my read of that is it has all of the charm that is a ni- typical Coen Brothers, but sometimes it just doesn't resonate with them, and this is one that it didn't. And he said it the most eloquently because he's a great critic, but a lot of critics said what I would say are those, that sentiment in different words where they're yeah. like, it seems like they're alien or they're misanthropic or they don't like humans. And you can tell that they're like pretending to be human, to mm-hmm. be charming. And I don't know, maybe I am broken. I don't see that separation. I don't as like a, as anything that would alienate me, uh, drama crash course for listeners who don't already know, uh, Bertolt Brecht is famously credited for, I mean, that's where the phrase Brechtian comes from creating, being one of the first person to popular create, theater that drew attention to the fact that it was theater like one of the very first like some of the first place to ever have a set that is just like let's say big abstract blocks of color and you're like wait this isn't an old farmhouse in russia where drama is playing out you're drawing attention to the fact that this is a play things where the characters break and go like 
hi, my act, my real name is actually this, and this is how I got into the production. Now we're going to go back to the play. Like, experimenting with the meta play meta and standing apart from your work and going like yes enjoy the work but let's not dick around you all know someone composed this universe right it's not real so i'm gonna have like these weird resonances and side commentaries where you get a glimpse into like you know what the author's really Mm -hmm. like you said waggling your eyebrows over the blah 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 but i would say that totally applies to burn after reading which people didn't say this about like everyone loved it not everyone, but I, critics yeah. liked it. I, it was a little bit more critically acclaimed than this one. This one was pretty panned. Fargo is fucking st- alienating as hell, but I guess it's okay if you're not because tr- you're not trying to be likable. You're trying to be dislikable. Yeah, I mean, if you want, if my honest opinion is, there's a lot of other reasons why Fargo is the type of movie that the Oscars like because the Oscars want to present this air of Criterion collection, you know, yeah. collectionness to the world that. A comedy will never... It's really hard for something like a dark comedy, like one of the ones that the Coen brothers make, or like even something like, I don't know, uh, Black Mirror or something like that, that kind of takes that meta space that you're talking about, would ever do well at the Oscar Best Picture. Uh, and I would argue and that... most awards. The Waldo Effect, the really funny, quote-unquote, Black Mirror episode, right. by far the least effective Black Mirror episode probably right. ever. Right, right. Um, which is not to say stay in your lane, because one of the things I love about the Coens, and I don't think anyone's ever said this probably on the face of the planet Earth, is they're the ween of filmmaking. <laughs> one's the chocolate and one's the cheese, and together they're a white, they're a ghost pepper. White pepper? I forget the name of that album. Whatever. I have no clue what you're ween talking Ween is about. a band with huge, uh, known for their huge variety of genre from song to song, album to album. Like mm. they do. I mean, Soren Bowie will like that. I mentioned them, but, uh, my point is all the ween fans out there, extreme versatility, extreme, you know, that, that nails it. Extreme versatility. Mm. But I realized even as I was saying what I was saying, I did set up a double standard because if I'm trying to defend that the Coens aren't misanthropic, I can't really call it Fargo. Cause that's like, that movie works. Perfect. Being misanthropic yeah. totally works for that movie. The challenge is, something like intolerable cruelty but what about lebowski because they clearly are making fun of and punching down at some of the archetypes in lebowski yeah yeah but i don't think anyone would say lebowski feels sterile or inhuman is that just the dude's character like saving the whole movie by uh, bringing the heart no because like julianne moore uh, is like a riff in that movie is Maude Lebowski is like a joke about high art and the sixties and like a Yoko Ono. And I would say, and she's still charming as hell to me. So really, she was the main example that came to mind where I'm like, that's misanthropic and alienating. They're totally making fun of that type of person. They are talking about high art, but uh, there's something refreshing in that movie where everyone's just like has no wants and is aimlessly being pivoted against each other by unknown forces. And then Maude comes in and is just like, this is something that I want. And I and it, so it's I guess it's refreshing when you it's like the concoction. It's like a soup. It so works. Frances McDormand and Byrne, though, it, the whole thing spirals yeah. out because she has a very clear goal. She's just like, I want this. Yeah. Maybe that makes it more effective. I can't say because I'm blind to it. In my mind, intolerable cruelty is charming and human feeling and good. And it fills me with warm, fuzzy feelings. No, I'm glad we talked about this because there's one last thing I want to say about this just for the setup before we do our normal three act or two act structure kind of thing on the podcast is uh, this is the first time that there were writers for hire 
So they, the story of this, this production is that there's, this is script had been written for like 15 years, existed as an idea in a lot of people's minds. That's why typically they don't co-produce, but that's why, you know, Grazer's there. And uh, they weren't going to be the uh, directors. They were brought in and kind of like when one of their projects fell through, they came in and said, we'll direct it. We like the the kernel of the idea. We want to take like a very short amount of time. It was something like a month or two. Yeah. Rewrite. And their process is essentially black boxed, which Mm. always frustrates me. Like we will never know if they just did a light polish pass or if that's kind of withheld from us. You don't know how much when Joel and Ethan like, it says like screenplay by so and so and Joel and Ethan Cohen. Mm-hmm. You like, did they hit delete and fucking rewrite? Did they yeah. punch it up a little somewhere in between? We don't know. We don't know. I'm gonna say that in my head, when I think about it, based off the things that you know, knowing the canon of Cohen Brothers, I think that they actually did a very light rewrite on this. I think they made things very Cohen esque, like with their line deliveries and like some of the quotations that we'll cite later. But um, ultimately, I, I don't think they crafted the story if at all i but it, we'll see that would make sense for several reasons that i think i'll save for pedagogy yeah let's go i also want to say just because you brought it up a lot of people have asked like oh why no suburbicon or why no crime wave mm-hmm. especially if you've purchased our awesome clothing brothers brothers official cohen brothers t-shirt <laughs> at the small beans merch store smallbeans.bigcartel.com then you know all the all the movies we're going to cover because mm-hmm. they're all posted on the shirt uh and i'll just say that we did it fairly holistically based on what we felt after sussing through it was their level of involvement and those ones we were like i don't know in its heart crime wave still feels more sam raimi than yeah. cohen brothers so you just got to let us do our thing. We decided deal with it. Yeah, we decided only the ones that they wrote and directed. Yeah. All right. So on this podcast, we analyze the films of the Coen Brothers through three spectra: diegesis, pedagogy, and how do you do that? Uh, we start with diegesis, which is what happened in the movie. And I'll start by saying, I think if you're a student of film, or if you're not, this is a learning opportunity. The big obvious takeaway is that this movie is trying to be like a Frank Capra classic screwball comedy romance a la It Happened One Night with some like maybe Preston Sturgis touch sprinkled in. Yeah. But like the Hudsucker Proxy, which is why I consider it sort of spiritually linked, it's an homage to those golden age of Hollywood films. Yeah. Specifically and Hail Caesar the, is kind of that. Specifically too. the romance. Uh, specifically screwball romance yeah. where they start and they meet each other and they go, I've never found anyone I immediately despised as much as that man. Right. And you're like, well, they're getting married at the end. <laughs> well, the, the one that, uh, the movie that most reminds me of, I think is bringing up baby. Mm-hmm. Was just, is uh, that the one with the tiger and Hepburn and, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's tiger. She's yeah. bra- raising a tiger cub, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 It's just, it's, um, but it's just a romance. And yeah. And I, I think that's Howard Hawks. Uh, so Howard Hawks, Preston Sturgis to me is always like, if they didn't exist and you don't know who those directors are of, the 60s there wouldn't be the Hudsucker proxy or this movie because they're references they, to those yeah. things yeah. like <laughs> in the same way that the Marx Brothers informs every bit of dialogue that we see as Cohen-esque also I know old black and white movies can be boring because like pacing has increased right. and shit um, there's, st- oh, there's I highly recommend it happen one night it's still delightful yeah. to watch to the modern viewer even if you've never seen it 
and any Preston Sturgis because yeah. Preston Sturgis was writing like Arrested Development Simpsons level dialogue in the 30s. Yeah, it, it feels out, like when you think of the 30s, you don't. It's surprising for how powerful he was that you really don't think about. He he was like one of the first guys that he broke the idea of like, well, you have to talk like this and this has to be the, you know, like, even <laughs> yeah. though it's in there. Where do you get off, pal? Yeah, <laughs> he was just like, sometimes they like, I guarantee there's some reel out there where like it's actors fucking up the lines and the kind of people they had around him would be like, well, I don't know, sister. And then he's fucks up his line. and goes, yeah. fuck shit. Ass. <laughs> you know? Right. Like they talk normal. Yeah. yeah. They just talk normal in this movie. Um, yeah. And I think that that aspect probably comes from the Coen brothers because they do that over yeah. and over. They're going to do it again with Hail Caesar. And in the history of putting this film together, as you said, there were multiple other directors and before the Coens, all those directors always had the same two leads in mind. Actually, no, they switched out the man. But first it was going to be uh, Hugh Grant and Julia Roberts. Then yes. they were thinking Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. Then you hand it to the Coen brothers, and they go, no, Catherine Zeta-Jones and George Clooney. And I honestly think, why? Because George Clooney is Cary Grant reincarnated. Right. Like, they wanted right. to turn it into a... So that feel, I think, is Coen. Mm -hmm. But then when you're right... The reason I don't think the underlying bones are Cohen is because if you analyze this script, it is fucking perfectly cookie cutter. Like, yeah, like f straight out of the Hollywood textbook act two break it's happens like screaming now, at you. Yeah. And the Coens never do that. Yeah, they, they fuck with structure. It's, that, it, it, I remember the first time it threw me for a loop because I was like, I don't understand what meta conversation they're trying to have here. Because it just feels like about like film. Yeah. Yeah. Because it just it straight up feels like an adult version, like all of like four weddings and a funeral. Kind like, of yep, stuff. It's a movie. One, yep. two, three. Notting Hill. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, definitely. And uh, and yet I like lots of movies that are cookie cutter and we get to see the Coen brothers making a cookie cutter film here and sort of suss out what things are theirs and what art. And I think that's interesting. Uh, and of course, Catherine Zeta-Jones modeled her performance on Catherine Hepburn, which they told her to do. So mm. uh, I don't think they're hiding their goals. I, like even Hudsucker Proxy, if you do it structurally, because it's an homage, yeah, it's fairly traditional, but there's shit like the white void where he's doing ballet with Zsa, Zsa Gabor. That would not be in a Preston Sturgis movie no. of the time. So this is probably their most traditionally structured movie to date that we've covered, right, definitely. Right. So as a result, Diegesis is going to be pretty short. Uh, basically you have our two players, Catherine Zeta Jones, whose only goal in life. And she's surrounded by other women who do this professionally, I guess would be the word mm. is to marry old, rich, silly men who will eventually cheat on you. Uh, or, you know, what's her name? She played Zsa Zsa Gabor in Hudsucker. Who played Zsa Zsa Gabor in Hudsucker? Uh, she died tragically. Anna Nicole Smith. She was a guest jeans model. Yeah. These are Anna Nicole Smiths because <laughs> she did this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Gold diggers is the term. I think the kids I think throw around. The kids throw around. But I would not. But this, these are not low stakes gold <laughs> diggers. These, kids? these are like the Fortune 500 gold diggers. Yeah. Of the world. Well, yeah. She was like set up a years long con to manipulate and this guy and get therefore his money. most of the conversations that she has with her inner quorum kind of thing and group of friends were equal like fair all fairly shallow. Like everyone in this movie is kind of shallow. Well, all um, they talk about is 
is nailing guys' asses and how much yeah, money are you going to get at, from the divorce? Like, pool. Like, they're near pools all yeah. the time. And they're never in one. They're just around pools. Uh, <laughs> right. So it's kind of like that and L.A. statement. Everyone's wearing identical white robes except mm. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. you know... She's destined to be one one shade more likable and nuanced yeah. and learn a lesson about love. Yeah. Cl- Clooney and uh, Zeta-Jones are the special ones. So. Exactly. So what makes Clooney special is he is a fucking dreadnought that destroys everything in his path. Yeah. He's no. basically Ozymandias, King of Kings. Right. <laughs> because from the textbook structure standpoint, his goal is called out when he says... I'm bored, uh, whatever. You know, he was talking to his associate. I'm bored. Sorry. You know, you get bored. You don't want it to happen. You're bored. Well, why are you bored? I have the yacht. I have the guy who cleans the yacht. I have the house in Vail. Uh, I can not even care about a case and just destroy. I have no more worlds to conquer. And God right. wept. It's sort yeah. of the, all yeah. he wants is a, ch- a mountain to climb. He has no more challenges. And you can see in the the courtroom scenes, he's like half listening to everyone everyone like he can do this with his blindfolded so when he hears of this new challenge which is like would be seen as insurmountable which is kind of the impetus of the movie which is donovan donnelly i love the names in this movie mm-hmm. actually that's by jeffrey rush, jeffrey rush. rush. So you're you're taking us back to frame up Fra- just like what the inside i do want to mention because i think it this ties nicely scene. into serious man's opening mm-hmm. so it makes me think it was probably a cohen choice frame up very intentional focus on a song they know you know. Yeah. The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. In the Corner Stands a Boxer and a Fighter by His Trade. Obviously applies to... Because the... <laughs> it's so textbook, dude. The theme of the movie is love is war. So the boxer's perfect. And that actually made me realize, in Serious Man, there's a reason they chose that song. Story for another day. Yeah. Please continue. <laughs> uh he basically he's a TV soap opera producer and he walks in on his wife boning uh I assume an ex-boyfriend but it's just like a pool guy and they don't have a pool which is a funny line that they mention. Oh wait, do we even have a fucking pool? pool. Yeah. yeah, so he catches all, her all uh and there there's like a scuffle like there's you know punches and she a gun is him involved. in the ass with his own Emmy. Yeah, and uh he takes photos of his ass which it's kind of funny because Cedric Entertainer comes back later saying going to nail his ass, and that's how this movie starts. Uh, so he files for divorce, um, Jeffrey Rush, that is, and Bonnie hires Miles Massey, uh, which is the George Clooney. Yeah, so really quick, I'm sorry. I forgot I wanted to do this at the top. I do think this is the most indulgent list of names I've seen until the next movie we're going to cover. Right. So I'm going to do this again then. Right. But I'm just going to read the names. Miles Massey. Uh, well, Catherine Zeta's Jones name by the end is like Marilyn Dinkley Rexroth Massey. That's that joke because she's been divorced and remarried so yeah. many times. Donovan Donnelly, Gus Petch, Rex Rexroth, Wrigley, just Wrigley. Freddie Bender, Sarah Sorkin. It sounds like Stan Lee named these characters. Yeah. Heinz the Baron Kraus von Espy. Also known as Fla- uh, Puffy. 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 Also referred to as Tenzing Norgay, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah. Um, and as he, as we said, the guy uh, she's boning in the first scene is Ali Alarud, the pool boy, who looks like 
He looks weirdly like Jim Carrey or Robin Williams to me, like yeah. a shitty surfer Robin Williams. Yeah, it actually smacks more of like a Bazooka Joe comic or something. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, like yeah. the names are like out of. They really feel like they're out of the forties for like, like Leave It to Beaver kind of stuff. Right, like Ollie. You know, like I don't know. But this scene basically tells you, oh, this movie is about. Uh, high stakes in terms of lots of money on the table, contentious divorces, mm-hmm. and the legal battles and the lawyers involved. So Miles Massey, uh, he's George Clooney. George Clooney, top divorce attorney. Uh, only notable thing is that uh, he's the inventor of the Massey prenup, which is a foolproof prenup. Essentially, it's never been broken. And, um, which is one of the reasons he's like, I'm done with this. I don't know what to do next. I made yeah. the Massey prenup. <laughs> and so, uh, and just to kind of save the cat, but in terms of his job, so by that I mean like proof that he is so good. We took this impossible situation where the woman absolutely cheated on him and he has proof of it and he has photos and, and stuff like that. An unwinnable situation. We just flash forward to Miles wins a large property settlement against Donnelly. But I did want to broke. I want to. There's a couple details in there I think that are worth mentioning because Cedric the Entertainer is amazing in this Mm. as Gus Patch, a private eye that Catherine Zeta-Jones frequently employs, and then Miles will also eventually employ. Right. Um, So yeah, her husband Rex Resroth, who I know just passed away. I forget the actor's name. He was also the dad in Richie Rich, which is why his Uh, doorknob Edward Herman. Edward Herman. Rest in peace, Edward Herman. Uh, I think it's a fun tidbit. The doorknob on his, the reason his name is Rex Rexroth probably is so that the doorknob on his mansion can be this ornate golden RR. And that's a reference to the fact that his previous role was Richie Rich's dad and Richie Rich. And they used the same prop doorknob in that movie. Also, RR <laughs> uh, is also an, a good, a well-known sign acronym for railroads. And he loves trains. Yes. So she hires Gus Petch to get footage of him, which he does having train related affairs. He loves trains. Where he goes choo 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 and he has sex with bimbos in yeah. a train hat. Yeah. Um so that's how they that's I just think it's important <laughs> to set up how impossible it was. Rex Rexroth comes in and says to Miles Massey, because of various legal things that, that are outstanding already, um, I can't give her any money and I have to kick her out on her ear and she has video of me banging other women and I did sign a prenup. Can you win anyway? And <laughs> like, inv- or I mean, I didn't sign a prenup. Yeah. Can you win anyway and get me all the money, even though I'm unlikable and she's likable? And he's like, "This is the challenge." This is I've the challenge I was born. Yeah. Um, I also love in that section, and then we'll move to Act Two. Um, you know what? I'll save it for pedagogy because it's more about the technique of how they did it. Yeah. Um. So, the first act is basically establishing because it's one, two, three. One, they hate each other. Two, they're intrigued by each other. By the end of three, they'll be in love. Right. Um, so in act one, by the end of act one, she hates him because he foiled her eight-year plan of becoming rich. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't think about her much beyond the fact of like, she was the my ultimate conquest mm-hmm. in the courtroom. Although they do the thing where with filmmaking tricks, you can tell they're destined to fall in love because like, they have an eye moment. The first time yeah. they're in a room together, never they don't flirt <clears throat> with each other, but like when they look at each other, they're like, who's that? <laughs> it's also uh, the script, though. They are both highly intelligent and like to flaunt it at each other, so there's a little bit of sword play, 
from the get-go. Right. You know, and he... Res- you can tell they both respect it, but they're on the wrong sides of the fence. So Marilyn and Miles, are for now, of course, if you believe in the rom-com, are not meant to be together. But, right. of course, the opposite's true. Um, so um, the next event that, like, matters, quote-unquote, is that... Uh, and there's details in here that I want to go back over in pedagogy. But the next thing that really matters, let's just get through this textbook arc of love, arc of love, is that uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Maryland, sorry, uh, employs Miles. And we've already, as has been set up in previous scenes with her chatting with her girlfriends, this is not uncommon. It's like she was so impressed by how he beat her that now she wants him to beat someone for her. Mm. And because he has no moral compass yet, that's fine. He'll take anyone's money. He Mm. finds it interesting to switch sides. That's kind of interesting. So she comes in with Billy Bob Thornton, who's cameoing as just like basically a fucking hayseed who happens to be a Texas oil tycoon. Yeah. Um, Howard D. Doyle. Yes. And she comes in and says, yeah, we came in because we know you have this massy prenup that's unbreakable. And... Knowing my past, I want Billy Bob Thornton, Howard D. Doyle. I want him to trust me. So as a romantic act, I want to sign the Massey prenup. Now, if you remember, to me, it can get confusing because it's like the prenup means you aren't exposed. But if you are exposed and it's who's richer than who, by the end, it's complex, which is part of the farce. But in this case, what she's doing means she cannot rip this guy off. And so Miles basically says in code right in front of her, like the subtext is, but I respected you as an opponent, and I thought you were doing X. Why are you doing Y? Trust me, you can't beat the Massey prenup. You're fucking yourself right now unless you're really in love with this man. And she's like, essentially, the subtext is, I'm really in love with this man. And he's like, but he's a goober. This is all in subtext. Yeah. But basically, the scene plays out. The supertext is them just going, are you sure you want to sign it? It's a big deal. Yeah, I want to sign it. Okay. And they sign it. And then, lo and behold... Miles Massey, who's depressed after that because he thought so highly of her and now he's like disappointed, is invited to their wedding. And as a wedding gift, Billy Bob Thornton says, no, Catherine Zeta-Jones, I want to show you that I trust you. So I'm going to rip up the prenup and eat it in with like barbecue sauce right, as a joke. A seed, yeah. And Miles literally starts applauding like doing a standing ovation and going beautiful like, beautiful yeah. and you know what he means she, the she manipulation got him, she got him to con himself essentially is right. what miles is thinking so which is true getting a, her signing the prenup was just the first step of wrapping this dude totally around her finger like getting him to trust her so then we flash forward again i believe mm-hmm. uh you want to take like this section months. so i can slurp down some coffee the no man conference and She's rich now, he thinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he starts to have kind of an existential issue with this. And it kind of all culminates at them having dinner again after time has passed. And he goes to this uh, no man conference, which is essentially him. It's a but it's a it's like an expo for divorce attorneys. And he's like. The top dog act three is a vegas showcase yeah it all takes place and in it's vegas. all in vegas and uh he's he's basically the one who's telling everyone he's the keynote speaker last year they meet they're on the same floor in the hotel uh and uh essentially yeah. essentially sh- he 
she gets her claws into him kind of thing. Which we don't know yet. And I do think. But he wants that. In terms of basic farce, act three has some good work done. Like this is not a bad zany comedy. The zany complexities like that twist did surprise me. So we will find out later that obviously her new goal is Miles Massey. Right. She's decided to take his money. It was the plan all along. So that's why she is coincidentally in Vegas. And she hid the fact that she, that uh, her husband, Billy Bob Thornton, she found out he was broke and they got divorced, but she hides that fact intentionally runs into him at this conference and has like a rich poodle and diamond jewelry on and shit. Yeah. So miles thinks she's richer than him. Yeah. Therefore being romantic with her is totally not dangerous. So he can actually toy with for the first time in his life being vulnerable and allowing himself to love someone. Yeah. And they do like, they fall in love. They fall in love. They they have this crit weekend. uh, And he, it kind of culminates for him when he is now like after their night, uh, he's supposed to go and talk at the expo. And he basically, he basically uh, implodes in terms of the, what everyone else sees and is expecting him to say, which is to be a shark, to be a shark, to be a shark. And the he, name of his initial speech was like the divestment of property from right. a woman who's been cheated on by doing this to her children. Like but, something horrible. Well, actually, I think it's like, uh, and his last year's was something like how to get your hands on your spouse's assets. So it's, uh, which, no, it was, uh, how to nail your spouse's assets. No, how to nail your ass is uh, Cedric the Entertainer. So it's kind of like they're both equally crass. But there's a there's a reference. We'll find it's it. I have it written down Raider, but it's even better. Like what the word they choose is a synonym for nail. But yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit. Yeah. I can't remember. It's, it's like just a background joke. Hammer your spouse's assets <laughs> yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The point being, they're <laughs> the same as Gus Patch. They're all scumbags. They're all scumbags. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so... <laughs> I mean, this is where it kind of like they kind of Ocean's Eleven it a little bit because it's still it still all happens chronologically, but you're seeing the expect. What I liked about Act Three is that the expectation of scenes kind of like in the same way of uh, when you watch Primer or a movie like that and you have to go back and we rewatch it. This one is lovely because it kind of unfolds and you go, oh, that whole scene is different now, knowing what I need to know. And like one of the first ones is that. Uh, they find out after, uh, I forget why he's now essentially drinking with his, um, I want to say his paralegal. What is that guy's role? Uh, he's in the, he's like credited as an associate. Yeah. An associate attorney at the firm, but Massey is a partner. Yeah. He is only referred to as Wrigley. Mm -hmm. It's like his buddy who he is low status who follows him around his smithers the guy he bounces ideas off of but then tells to shut up and go away whenever he wants right right uh so (laughs) so they're they're like uh i i don't i can't remember if it's like implied that it's a stag night because the idea is that they're just gonna get go get married in vegas yeah they get married they get married at the little wedding chapel in vegas and they wear the kilts they wear kilts and, and this is after he gives as you said which i think is important to highlight Probably the most textbook scene of all the scenes. Yeah. It's based on the speech that the greed is good speech from Wall Street is also based on. Uh Um, But this time it's love is good. Mm -hmm. So I do like that flip that they were uh, they're parodying a scene where a guy's trying to convince normal human people who you assume have hearts uh, 
no, 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 greed is good. It's okay to give in to the dark side. So they flipped it. This is a bunch of lawyers who are divorce attorneys. So it's literally a lawyer joke. The scene is a lawyer joke. Mm -hmm. Like, they're so heartless that he has to give an opposite speech. And it even ends with a slow clap, slowly building. Right. And then all standing. And this gives him the, like, passion to immediately propose, get married. He signs. No, that's it. He thinks that she's rich. Therefore, if they got divorced, he'd get half of her money. So he signs the Massey prenup to prove his love for her. Yes. Then she immediately reveals, no, I'm penniless. You're way richer than me. Ha ha. Gotcha, bitch. Well, he finds it out by seeing that Billy Bob Thornton is just an actor. Billy Bob Thornton is an actor friend of hers. Yeah. On TV. Right. So it's just, again, one of those just circumstantial events that kind of happens. Well, it's connected to Jeffrey Rush because... Jeffrey Rush, who we saw in the beginning, and is basically just our like example. He's mm. an example of a divorce to set yeah. up the movie. Yeah. He was also the producer on a TV show, which that woman now owns because she nailed his ass in the divorce. Yeah. Catherine Zeta-Jones has one scene where she meets the woman, then tracks him down. He's a bum now. And she says, I need you to find someone for me. And you're, you think, because it's set up competently, you think she's asking about how to find Miles Massey, the attorney. Mm. But she probably just found him through the phone book. What she actually was asking for was, who's that actor on your show, Billy Bob Thornton? I want to use him in this scheme. You know, it's crazy how much it does feel like Hudsucker Proxy. Because, like, what clicked it is what for me is what you said about how it's just a big lawyer joke. Just like the stockholder meetings and the board of directors and, uh, like, they're all just play acting like the most typical greedy examples yeah. of the thing that we think of with wall street higher ups, you know? And then, yeah, it's just like, right. We'll take them for all their work. Yeah. Sure, and sure. then <laughs> the gumption of the main characters propel them forward. But really what ignites the events is like a newspaper blew in the wind or a hula hoop <laughs> right. blew. And, you know. and the coffee stain happened yeah. to be on the ad yeah. that is destined to be. Right. Yeah. Or you sees the actor on TV. Yeah. And it's very raising Arizona too. in that way, I think. Yeah. Um, so, where are we at? Oh, yeah. So now if you're following the logic, because she tricked him into signing a prenup uh, when I'm, she does the same thing. It doesn't matter. She does the same thing she did to Billy Bob Thornton, basically, where she gets him to trust her by doing it. And then it gets ripped up. She rips it up this time to be like, it doesn't matter that I'm richer than you. I don't need a prenup. And he goes, oh, great. Then the prenup's disavowed. And she goes, surprise. I'm penniless. Mm-hmm. I want a divorce. I get half your money. And this is vengeance for the time you blocked, cock blocked me from getting my money before you motherfucker. And he, of course, is like, oh, I meant it for real this time. I actually loved you. So mm-hmm. this is devastating. So, and, and now she's got to be wondering, is he doing this emotional thing like right. I would do? And she's I like, do all I the can't time trust and- you're not manipulating me right yeah. now. And they go like, okay, then even if... Even if, hypothetically, we really love each other, it's too dangerous. There's too many barriers. So on paper, we're enemies. Bye again. So it's like they keep coming together and bouncing away. And, of course, Catherine Zeta-Jones has one of her shallow, rich friends die alone in in her giant mansion because she's so lonely and alone that (laughs) no one found her for three days and her cat ate her face. And it makes Catherine Zeta-Jones be like, Maybe huh. I would rather have been in love than live this life of money and no trust. Weird, weird stakes raising at this point. 
Miles Massey, who has never been humbled in this way, is called before the boss of their firm, who says basically, your failure humiliates the firm. You have to do anything to fix it. Which, And I will say, this is the weirdest leap to me because they're about to be in love in real life. You could never come back from this. Like, how could you trust someone who did this? Like, even went along with this plan. Right. He agrees and does it. He does the hiring. He goes, you're right. We have to have her killed by a hitman. Mm-hmm. So now he's going to have the woman he loves killed. That's just a crazy flip to me. Right. Which, uh, <laughs> Wheezy Joe. We mean Wheezy Joe. Yeah, Wheezy Joe, who, you know, gets his name from all of his wheezes. <laughs> Well, he carries it around asthma inhaler, which is yeah, another setup. Another, yeah. She does hire her uh, or hire him to kill Marilyn and then learns uh, that her ex-husband Rex died without changing his will. So the train so it's guy. it's deus ex will now. The same dumb train guy after that divorce proceeding did not learn his lesson and get any legal protection. He yeah. just kept fucking women in train outfits. Which she doesn't. <laughs> Based on the assumption of how she's been acting in this strategy game, that she wouldn't know this either. She doesn't know it. But so she's now the wealthier of the two parties involved in the marriage. She doesn't realize so it's the third flip. She doesn't know that train guy is so dumb that she's still going to inherit all his wealth just because mm. he never changed his will. Right. So now she has even more money than Miles Massey. So now if the divorce proceedings go through, all he has to do is make sure the paperwork goes through before she finds out the Rex Rex Raw thing. And now he'll nail her ass. So it's all this ass nailing. More urgently and immediately. So she can't be killed. Because if she gets killed, that will change everything. Right. So now he must stop what he's doing and immediately go to her house. So he takes Wrigley and they go to To stop Weezy Joe from murdering his wife. Meanwhile, it turns out she bought a bunch of Rottweilers and she already knew that Wheezy Joe, she already subdued Wheezy Joe and Wheezy Joe already admitted like she knows that George Clooney hired him. Right. So she goes, I'll pay you double to kill them when they get here. See, it is a good zany screwball comedy. It builds well. It's, yeah, yeah. And so now we know that they're, they're skulking around her house, trying not to get caught. To find Wheezy Joe and say, don't kill her. But Wheezy Joe is skulking around trying to kill them. They find each other. There's a struggle. And in the confusion, Wheezy Joe mistakes his gun for his asthma inhaler and shoots himself in the head. Right Which in the, is a fantastic. Right in the mouth. Right in the mouth. Right in, right in where the inhaler goes. Uh, eats a bullet. Yeah. I thought that that was like. I both laughed and it was also like, all right, <laughs> like it's just so yeah. over the top, but it, it does fit this film. It does fit this I'll film because it's very loud. It's like the Coen brothers are saying like, rom-com, you love this rom-com. Right. I do think, as I said, it's an odd flip given that they're going to find true love with each other. Right. That murder got involved, but I still tip my hat to it because- uh, I wrote a play once that is a, is heavily inspired by Hudsucker Proxy, uh, Olympus Inc., which you can watch on the Small Beans YouTube channel mm-hmm. if you dig back in the archive. And this is the magic bullet, so to speak, which is literal in this case, but in stereotypical structural terms means like the deus ex machina, but hopefully it's not because deus ex machina by definition means unearned. Hopefully it's something you slyly set up 
that the audience has to go, oh, that's right. But it comes in at the last second when all is lost and you're like, oh, no, he has the thing. That's right. I forgot. The thing will save us. And it's really hard not to make it paperwork. There's yeah. so many movies and plays, and in Olympus Inc. it's paperwork too. It's like it's the fine oh, print. Zeus died, and and this paperwork never. This got thing filed. you noti- didn't notice the first time because you didn't think to look. So at least they're like, we've used the paperwork thing too much. It has to be something else. Oh, you know what would be funny? A guy shoots himself in the face because he thinks it's an asthma inhaler. <laughs> Fucking nerd. And I'm like, yeah, that is fresher than paperwork. It's a funny thing to save mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Um, so. They apologize to each other and fall in love. Their lawyers are present. Their lawyers are present trying to encourage them to continue the battle, basically. Their lawyers are being like, we can prove you tried to have our client killed. We can prove this. Yeah. Well, who's going to get the money? Well, I can invalidate the will. If we retroactively and all agree that it happened before, just do the the prenup. And they're like- We can just walk away. We drop all charges and we trust each other. We're going to get married and now we're going to make out in front of you Mm -hmm. because it's the end of the movie. They both- both of them are like, no, I trust you, and signs a prenup, and the other one rips it up, and it's like, no, I trust you. Yeah. And, and they're like, well, they're both, they're all ripped up, and they go, but darling, you're exposed, and they make out. So they, they get married. Yeah. A fucking, I love, in 2019, it has to be said, because this was back when we really liked movies about rich white people problems. But like, right. So two rich white people who were going to be rich compared to you, the listener, no matter what happened, uh-huh. because like money was funnily down, funneling down to them from mm-hmm. multiple directions, and George Clooney was already rich. But they're richer than ever, yeah. <laughs> and they love each other, and yeah. they have an Instagram account that destroys yours, probably. Yeah. They're better than you. They're George Clooney and Catherine fucking Zeta. <laughs> and they even support Doyle, uh, who is on the street, so they saved the homeless man by giving him a TV show, yeah. which, of course, is Cedric the Entertainer's nail is that uh, the final payoff right is they combine jeffrey rush who needs a new tv show to produce and cedric the entertainer who has helped them both tremendously but not really been rewarded right his reward is he's the new host of a game show called nail your ass where he basically well it's called america's funniest divorce videos but he constantly Mm. says nail your ass and it's weird because and i think again this is a coen brothers joke probably because it's like a misanthropic view of humanity the implication is because the only other scene earlier is we see that he keeps all the tapes from his cases and it's almost always a guy cheating on his wife and he sits around with his friends and they watch the sex right. scenes. Like they a, watch like a, they like watch sports. porn, home yeah. porn. And uh, this show is his tape archives. So they're basically saying like, you fucking stupid Americans. What's next? You want you want to watch people cheating on each other? That's yeah. how crass and uncouth you and are. Yes, yeah. and yes, it and is. yes, that is what the Coens there's think of you. A part of the civilization that does. So. Sure, but you know, there's been like uh, there was that great Black Mirror episode about whoever gets Voyeurism. the most dislike yeah, votes yeah, is yeah, going to yeah. die, and I believe that too. I'm like, yeah, a percentage of people would participate. Yeah. Voyeurism is a part of the thing. Well, the statement here is love is good, and which is like yeah, this, but it's. I just uh, I don't see the problem when like the statement of the Hudsucker proxy is just don't give up. <laughs> like it's equally you're simple. right when you <laughs> when you boil them down to sound bites they're all stupid. But yeah, uh, it's well it's funny because they are and they aren't because no country you could boil down to there is no God or all is chaos 
And even though that's only three words, it's still infinitely more unpackable sure. than love is good. Yeah. 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 It's <laughs> like also a lot not saying much. About. There's more yeah. angles. Yeah, yeah, there's more angles. Uh, but that that's that's the movie. Remember going to Blockbuster Video back in the day? Uh-huh. Uh, some people listening probably don't, but if you went into any kind of video store, and today at bookstores you still get it, one of my favorite sections was the staff picks, you know? Yeah. Like, not just randomly searching around or doing whatever movie everyone's talking about, but being like, oh, another human being chose this for reasons. And, of course, there's a great Seinfeld episode where it's like, if you vibe with one person, you would go back to that video store, you know, and know, oh, I like their picks. So... What I'm getting at, and we're very excited about this, is our first sponsorship opportunity here at Small Beans. We're working with a great service, streaming service, called Mubi, M-U-B-I, but pronounced like a, a movie, a bumblebee that Mubi. is a cow, Mubi. And uh, what they do, as opposed to your Netflix, your Hulus, your Vimeo, uh, is rather than just, ha- well, Vimeo doesn't really enter into it, but oh, like Amazon <laughs> Prime. Yeah, your Primes. Um, rather than just scatter shouting a bunch of content at you, like often more than you can even take in and you got to you're on your own. You'd figure it out. Is bird box good? I don't know. Watch it. Oh, it wasn't. Fuck you. We burned you for two hours. Um, rather than that movie has a very small staff of film experts who really curate great stuff that you're really going to like for good reasons. And, uh, there's only 30 films available at a time. Uh, there's a new film added every day. Members can stream the films or download them to their desktop. Uh, and they just have great stuff. Like they currently ran Pi and they have a bunch of additional. Winter's Bone is Winter's on there. Winter's Bone. Uh, they cover things like whatever's big at Sundance. They'll have a Sundance month where you get you don't have to go to Sundance. You get to see all the best movies. Which is this month, right? February? Uh, I think it was January, February. The, as a, they always have 30 movies, but they're focusing on uh, the Berlin International Film Festival in February. Uh, but just in general, like we said, great movies. Movies that Abe and I would highly recommend. And if you go to the page mubi.com slash brothers, just two brothers, no, just, just brothers. Just brothers. Um, you'll show your support for movie. You'll get an extended free trial, which you wouldn't get otherwise. And you'll show your support for us. We actually don't generate any ad revenue from this uh, unless you use the service because we want you to enjoy the service or we don't want to benefit. But we wouldn't be mentioning it if we didn't really think it was a cool idea. I, I use it myself. I'm starting to use it more often than Netflix because uh, you avoid the whole like 40 minutes of scanning around mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Mubi.com, M-U-B-I.com slash brothers. Help us out and uh, help yourself out. Mm. Watch some movies. Yeah. So rotate your prism one third of the way around and move into a new spectrum. This one's pedagogy, which is where we talk about sort of the moments we liked, but specifically why we liked them is usually because we feel they were filmically effective. And we sort of break down what makes them effective. What was the technique? What were they actually doing? How did they do craft that moment? Uh, and the first thing I'll, I want to ask is you're saying, I think that this was mind blowing to me, to you. Therefore, I assume it will be to the audience. This is the m- highest budget Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. And we don't mean up to this point, right? No, it's, uh, it's to 2019. Ever. So, ever. Up, yeah, yeah, up till including Buster Scruggs. $60 million, yeah. This is their <clears throat> mo- highest budget movie. 
And I literally wrote a question I wanted to ask you because you do more of this research better than me. As I was going to be like, did the Coens shoot this in L.A.? Because this is their first yes. one shot in L.A. since Lebowski. Mm. But Lebowski has a lot of set pieces that do cost money, mm. like mods swinging around in her whole apartment and right. the mansion and shit. This felt like it. I was like, did they shoot this in L.A. to just whip it off really cheap? No, because it cost $60 million. No. And I'm just uh, wondering where the money went. Well, yeah, I mean, I... Clooney? The, the producing <laughs> fa- uh, f- faculty said something that always clicked with me just because it was funny how it happened in my brain, which is when you're, if you're making a movie, what's the worst thing? And you want to keep it under a low budget. What's the worst decision you can make? And... Uh, and we're all like period pieces, and she's and like, like, "Yeah, that's, that's bad, there. but it's she not like, the one no, I'm thinking of." The one <laughs> I'm thinking of is don't make movies about rich people because they have rich things and and ri- they rich live in cars rich houses. and they live in Beverly Hills, and it's hard to shoot. And if there. you ever have a driving scene, you need to buy so, a very high end car. <laughs> uh, not only it's star studded cast, which definitely took probably a some doing. the majority of the money. Yeah, uh, but I don't actually know. I don't I just know. I think because a like, lot of it's but people also, in rooms talking, and they're rooms that aren't hard to get. But Conference like, room, courthouse. They're like well-known, like rich people places, like four-season hotels and stuff. I'm pretty yeah. sure there's a few in jokes that I'm not getting, even though I live in L.A. Like the equivalent of like shooting at the Chateau Marmont, and you know. They, and it's like, yeah. oh, they're hinting at that Vegas place that and then of course know. they locked down a vegas hotel right kicked everyone out and repopulated it with extras that's yeah. quite expensive right which is it's i always find a stupid thing to do because it's like isn't that crazy we shot at that place where it's like really hard to shoot and cost a lot of or money like for con like air shots. is like can you believe we bought vegas yeah. for a night and 99 like, percent of the it? population was like that was just a nice room <laughs> I don't know. Right. I didn't think about it. Uh, they could have shot the Vegas scenes on a soundstage dressed yeah. like a casino. I don't care. So it's that <laughs> or it's just a lot of chefs, which is another thing that makes your movie expensive. Having a lot of producers and having a lot of actors that are high profile. Speaking of chefs, I do think we should always mention, and I hope they got paid a shit ton too because they deserve it. The, the culinaries. The Mount Rushmore of the Coenverse is fully assembled and in play on this film, and I'll always call that out when it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ellen Chenoweth on casting, Carter Burwell on score, Mary Zofries on costume. costume design, Roger Deakins on camera. Fucking all-star team. Yeah, I mean, that's like... Carter the, Burwell and fucking T-Bone Burnett. This podcast is equally dedicated to them. The Coens would not yeah. exist. It's yeah. the whole team. Yeah. It's the, they, that this team, when they get like, think of the most, like think of a scene in any Coen brothers movie and being like, that is so Coen brothers. It, I'm going to say like 99% sure with certain, almost certainty that, that was the team assembled to create that image and all those elements in play. Like right. in Fargo, you'll be like, God, this haunting score is perfect for this moment. Right. And who could it be except Steve Buscemi and look at the shot yeah. and his costume is so seventies. It's perfect. And they're going to, and they're going to be kind of like this for a while. They have like, they've already been working with all these people for a long time. Like this is like, Oh brother crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they, they keep it sustaining until like no country, you know? Yeah. They're, it's still the same team. They the only recently has like Deacons stopped shooting with that. Like he didn't shoot the last two. I think. Yeah. yeah. But like it's just because he's so he shoots everything now. It's and hard to. Speaking of the Deacons, 
Did you do you have an equal amount of affection for that for Miles Massey's introduction, the two shots, the teeth shots? Oh yeah. I do love those. Can you describe them? I feel like I'm dominating too much. What? The just how they I mean like all what right, they I'll do. Go. But you go next to something. No, no, no. Prep I want something. you to say, say uh, what you want. Well, he's he's made his empire by talking. Right. It's I'm again, this movie's not like trying to challenge you. Yeah. But it's doing the things. <laughs> he's made his movie by talking, so he acts through his teeth and his mouth is his is his right. weapon. I love that. And you gotta keep your blade sharp. So the first shot of him that we see is at the, not the dentist, but at a teeth whitening place with that thing in his mouth that holds your mouth open so you can see his teeth like ghoulishly. It's just mm-hmm. a close up shot of his teeth, but he's still on the cell phone talking, mm-hmm. telling, giving his secretary orders because he's all surface and he never stops working, you know, perfect introduction. Yeah. And then what really gets me is the edit because you haven't shown Clooney's face yet and Clooney's your star. Then you cut to just teeth. You well, yeah. Well, his first shot is just teeth. Yeah, and I would say most other companies or directors would have then cut to a shot of his face, and we go, George Clooney's in the movie, baby. Yeah. But instead, they put one shot in between that I think is so beautiful, which is a three quarters overhead shot through his car windshield, and the reflections going by the windshield, like from trees and stuff overhead. Hell yeah, yeah is so this. meticulously professionally. Like it's like the uh, newspaper blowing or the hula hoop and Hudsucker. Right, it blows my mind because of the effort it's choreography, involved. Yeah, the reflections going by the windshield block his face but reveal his teeth. Like you can see through the windshield and see his smile, and he's checking his teeth in the rearview mirror. He's just teeth. And on the cut, the like top row of his teeth is perfectly aligned with how they were in the previous shot. So it's just like this weird like he's teeth. He's still teeth. Mm-hmm. And then it ends with his secretary going, where are you now? And he walks up to the secretary's desk and into his first close up and goes, I'm coming right at you. And you're like, okay, now George Clooney. Now we know who this guy is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You should make cartoons like you make cartoons. You don't just make cartoon jokes. You actually make it a living, breathing cartoon cartoon. So if someone is like, if someone is all ears or someone's all teeth, what does that mean? Are they like big listeners or are they big talkers? Yeah. And something I noticed when he's not just checking his teeth, he's also sticking out his tongue. Uh, and like, it's just his mouth, mouth maintenance. Yeah. He just clearly went to the dentist. Uh, and it, to me, it's like they're introducing him obviously because of his gift of gab, his, this, Mm -hmm. the silver tongued kind of serpent that, uh, you know, he's, being represent he's representing as the lawyer uh i think that they do that all the time they did in no brother with john Turturro acting through his teeth yeah uh and i think it's- and in that one which is interesting i just like i think i like knowing that actors still have craft and care and like right right clooney intentionally because Taturo was going to didn't act through his teeth in oh brother yeah he acted through his brow his br- eyebrows, and in yeah. this he acts through his teeth and you, if you watch him back to back, you can tell the difference and gives you appreciation for like, oh, there is craft to acting. It's not just assholes showing up and doing and being the lines. charismatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's very true. Uh, the they and they usually choose like a few every project. This one, um, with Catherine Zeta Jones, they did something different, which is I think how almost everyone. It's like how Soderbergh shot Catherine Zeta Jones. It's like how you if Catherine Zeta Jones is in your movie and it's like early two thousands, you know, like this is, 
the treatment. She's just like elegance. It's like an Elle magazine right? has yeah. walked into your movie. Yeah, like a exactly. Co- a magazine cover has walked. Yeah, into your so movie, she yeah. and of course she's always we- she's wearing the dresses of rich people. And- I have no idea if Elle magazine is a glamorous magazine. I can't. I don't think, think of it is a glamorous. I mean, ma- but like I know Cosmo is not. I don't. But you know what I mean. You, you just, it's like a fashion magazine fashion, yeah. cover is in the movie now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do think it's interesting that it's verifiable that they asked her to model her performance after Catherine Hepburn, which is also what they asked. Vivian Lee to do in Hudsucker. Right. Pro. They're yeah. like, let's just do it again. We we really like Hepburn movies. <laughs> like, yeah. she's our favorite romantic female lead, obviously. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I also really liked the moment uh, when, because we mentioned it earlier, but we didn't mention the detail, and I think it shows a good bag of tricks, which is that he and Wrigley, when he's basically doing something that, Futurama would put it this way. You can't just have your characters say what they're feeling. That makes me feel angry. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be shitty exposition. And I guess arguably it still is if they didn't find a game to play around it. Because George Clooney is literally sitting there telling Wrigley, here's my deal. I'm this guy. And I used to be this guy, but now I'm at this point, And here's what I want because mm-hmm. of that. But what makes it charming and I think saves it is they're doing this while a trial is unfolding in front of them, a case that they're on and their client is between them sitting between them. Oh, also weird side note. The judge has an identical name to the character of the matron in a neck in lady killers. Right. For some reason, they're both named Marva Munson. Yeah. But, uh, during this trial and it does make it funny, they're talking about this shit and, and he's going like, for example, look at this case we're doing right now. It's bullshit. Like, I don't care. I'm not listening, but I'm still going to win. And the client will be like, should you be paying attention? He'll be like, shut up, dude. Shut up. We're talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll say, and basically spells out the metaphor. Everything in life is compromised. Marriage is compromised. Even divorce is compromised because it's a compromise between the skill levels of the two divorce lawyers. We reach a compromise that determines the payout and he's like i'm sick of compromise i want to find someone i can (laughs) utterly destroy like attila the hun did compromise is death of course by the end he'll realize no he wants a loving compromising vulnerable relationship (laughs) whatever the fuck but i like that it's based in the thing and then of course that the punchline is he really wasn't listening and nevertheless uh when the judge goes are you guys even paying attention? Cause it's your turn to cross examine the witness. He walks up and with one question completely destroys your credibility right. and wins the case. Yeah. So he's not wrong. Cartoonish he, takeover. He didn't everything. need to pay attention. Yeah, he, he was right. He's yeah. so good. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I love what you're, you're mentioning that like his, his process and what that means. There's, there's like four or five runs in the movie. that are just like great writing. Right. Yes. So like uh the the one that you're referencing is it's um him and Wrigley is the name of his yeah. like paralegal or his partner. Smithers. Yeah, Smithers. <laughs> have you have you sat down uh Rex says, Have you sat before her before? No, no, the judge sits first, then we sit. <laughs> well, have you sat after her before? Sat after her before? You mean have we argued before her before? <laughs> the judge sits in judgment. The counsel argues before the judge. You know, it's like it's just this constant wordplay. Who's like, on first? Who's on first? Costello, yeah. man. Yeah. And then it's like, uh, look, don't argue. I'm not. I'm no. You don't argue. We argue. Counsel, Counsel argues. argues. <laughs> you appear. The judge sits. Then you sit. 
or you stand in contempt. And then we argue. The council argues, which you've done before, which we have done before. Ah, but not, but before. not before her. <laughs> yeah. And then he goes, oh, shit. And yeah. it starts. So all he wanted to know is, have you been here before in front of this judge? And it took, it takes like... 30 lines of dialogue for him to get that information. I mean, he means if you sat before her. Yeah, but... And they're like, no, you stand when she enters. You sit after her. Yeah. Oh, we're, we're, and then you're in again. Yeah, and then yeah. you're in again. Yeah, it's just so fucking good. But uh, I think that has got to be the easiest scene to call. The Coen brothers did touch that scene. Yeah, Because exactly. the echolalia, the, like the repetition and the wordplay aspect is their primary humor trick that they like to do. Right. And I think uh, it makes Clooney one of the most Cohen-esque actors, in my opinion. He because is fucking he, charming. He's so good at nailing it. Looked Like, I think the funniest joke in this one is the Kirshner line. Because they're like, yeah. uh, it's all start. It's between him and... Uh, Ri- we haven't uh, given Richard Jenkins Richard enough Jenkins, love. Yeah. Richard Jenkins basically plays the divorce lawyer who actually does care about his clients. Right. And he comes seems in, incompetent, but I don't think he it's is kind of Jack Lemony. Yeah, he's still in their league. So he must be a very competent lawyer, mm-hmm. but he's not charming or aggressive. He comes in in the rumpled suit and, and is constantly like, playing like he always loses to Miles Massey. Right. And he nails it. It's very funny and cute. Yeah. It's like, uh, don't, don't, don't. Don't try to get a rise out of me. <laughs> Kirshner doesn't apply. We'll bring this child. We'll see if Kirshner applies. What's Kirshner? Please let me handle this. Kirshner was in Kentucky. Kirshner was in Kentucky? Yes, Kirshner, Kirshner was, was in Kentucky. Kentucky. All right, Freddie, forget Kirshner. What's your bottom line? Primary residence, 30% of remaining assets. What are you, nuts? Have you forgotten Kirshner? <laughs> and, then he go, and then he gets mad and walks out, and he's like, Freddie, I was just joking. Yeah. So the difference between them, I think they're both good lawyers. But George Clooney will do Machiavellian tactics, including... Not just doing what the law says, but wearing a power tie to alpha male you in the room yeah. and shit. And Freddie Bender thinks that stuff is cheating. Like, that's the difference right. between them. There's the law. He like doesn't I, make it dirty. Clooney makes it dirty. Clooney and uses Freddie, everything at his disposal. And Freddie gets offended by that. Yeah, mm-hmm. like by the unprofessionalism. Yeah. Like, Clooney even, the first time they have dinner, flirty dinner, he and Catherine Zeta, if you parse back the time, you realize... He only took her out so her house would be empty so a private eye could like steal find her, her address files book. on yeah. her sh- computer for him to make his case. Yeah, yeah, like it's he's not nice. Yeah, and then and even he uses the law to circumnavigate like the law. <laughs> the law and yeah, morality in general because they're like Well, and you're not even well cases going on. You're not supposed to have a flirtatious no. dinner with the opposite party. No. That can get you disbarred too. Yeah. And he's like Right, but, you know, he always talks his way out of it with, like... And then he's like, but then developing these photos themselves will get us disbarred. And he's like, no, it won't, because I'm just going to accidentally drop this into your hand. And if you happen to get them developed, I'll look at them. Which wouldn't stand... Would not stand in front of court. No, Everyone would be like, yeah, all right, man. But I think his argument is, in this universe, which is cartoony, Mm -hmm. they're law wizards... He's yeah. saying, I would always find a way to, like, I could fix it in yeah. the courtroom if I had And to. the courtroom itself is kind of a cartoon, you know, like, uh, do you, what reciting do you poetry? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, objections, reci- uh, poetry. Oh, objection, poetry <laughs> recital. <laughs> I'm going to allow I'm it. I'm going to allow That's it. a cartoon. Yeah. That's a Simpsons joke. Yeah, just. And it, that uh, the scene you just cited reminds me so much of the, you know what, you are high, you're recidivist. Yeah, So exactly. I, it just makes me want to say, Raising Arizona is their best cartoon. Yeah, they're like five cartoons they've made raising Arizona's and uh, they love um, taking other languages or 
dialects of languages and making it a butt of a joke because it sounds like a pun. In fact, one of the reasons I think you know that they didn't touch the script too much is the lack of unique ways of speaking. The characters speak pretty much like traditional modern-day screenplay characters, except in the jokey scenes that you get the impression. I think Joel and Ethan did touch that I'm pretty sure, like, I was going to double down and even say that Heinz, the Baron uh, Cross Van Espy, was entirely a fiction of theirs. Like, they just took a guy who's probably just works at a hotel and they made him the hotelier yeah. the, to everything and because they even have the joke they like maybe answer he's like uh will you do you promise to say the truth tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth and he just says yes sir which in french he's saying like, maybe answer and he says no maybe yeah and he's like, no maybe no, yeah maybe yeah can't say maybe. No, the Baron does not lie. Yeah. Um, and also they cast a really interesting looking and seeming guy, yeah. which is very them. And also the uh, the fact that his introduction to the plot is based on a Tenzing Norgay Edmund Hillary reference mm-hmm. seems like the kind of nerdy history reference they also like. So I think you're right. I also just love in that first courtroom scene with that they're not paying attention, the... This is not really a bag of tricks thing. I just think it's an amazing detail. Some of the lines that are going on that they aren't paying attention to are incredible because the case is this like average looking middle-aged woman saying that she was a sex slave to her husband for 27 years and there was no whim. She did not indulge and like all this crazy shit and her lawyer who looks exactly like Mitch McConnell uh, <laughs> they have a great Turtle interchange man. only hones in on the like mundane inconveniences. Um, she says, and he built this sex machine. He called it the intruder. Yeah. It was an apparatus built out of parts from our vacuum cleaner. I didn't have access to the vacuum cleaner for several months. And he goes, Hmm. Yes, without the appliance, several <laughs> yes, months. Yes. <laughs> She's like, that's right. Yeah. And also, I just love the idea that G- George Clooney, after this movie ends, is like, I am going to build an intruder. And that's where we get the intruder from Burn After right. Reading. So, oh, you're trying to pitch cannon with George Clooney? <laughs> yeah, because I think that that device in Burn After Reading, that is the intruder. That is the intruder. That's a Pixar connection. Like, I think the Coens wrote this joke and are referencing and, the intruder yeah. in Burn. <laughs> and and you, we know from the past, other podcasts we did, uh, we uh, I in researching found out, like, the only reason that... Uh, the Jesus exists is because of jokes that were being the Jesus in Big Lebowski is jokes yeah. that were being had since Miller's Crossing. I would not be surprised if the Intruder, some mythical sex device, was like was an in joke on Cohen sets right. and became a thing. They were uh, yeah. getting coffee and they made a sex joke. About yeah, better tip intruder. him or he'll build the Intruder. Or what? A, yeah, whatever. And the Cohen <laughs> brothers probably went like, mm, mm, mm-hmm. and then went home and wrote a hundred pages on the Intruder. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, something that I wanted to uh, point out, they make a big deal, and I don't know if this is the Coen brothers infusing this, if this was in the script and they wanted to play with it, but in the courtroom scene and in the uh, dining scene in like the courtship phase of uh, Clooney and uh, Zeta-Jones, mm-hmm. uh, they quote high, like, fl- like Christopher Marlowe and Shakespeare, you know, who were well-known... The adversaries, you know, like they. that's what it's not because that's the Cohen shine because it's one level to be like, 
oh, they're both smart, so they flirt so by they, using quotations. Yeah, they use poetry. These are two writers who were linked as adversaries who ended up having grudging mutual respect mm-hmm. for each other by the end of their lives. Perfect analog. Uh, <laughs> and also both of the... So the one that Clooney says first is uh, from uh, Hero and Leander, which is Christopher Marlowe, whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Her response, dismiss your vows, your feigned tears, your flattery, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Venus and Adonis. So they're both... It's a Shakespeare poem, yeah. Yeah, so they're both about the relationship between two people being very bipolar. But they are by poets who wrote love poetry that was really sappy that assumed true love is real. Right. Which So it's at the same time fitting and ironic that they would use their words at this date where mm-hmm. they're both pretending to date but actually trying to fuck each other over right right there's at least four layers it's there's, nice there's, layered it, they, yeah. they put layers in there yeah. uh it's I a don't parfait think anyone like an gleaned ogre. that i don't think anyone gleaned that i didn't glean it the first time i, I gleaned it now because i'm watching with the with goggles of like yeah We're gonna make and the i show, did the research and i things. was like what is that poem yeah. about oh right. shit that's relevant um what's crazy though is that how it to me actually even has this fifth level, which has nothing to say about the poetry or the Elizabethan, po- you know, poets and playwrights that the words come from. Has absolutely to do with how people and culture view rom coms, mm-hmm. because sometimes when we just need, like in a rom com, because we just need a quick and dirty reason why they are they, like they are who they are. They have an identity, and sometimes their identity is smart or it's charming or it's stupid or it's, um, you know, just a very open-minded or whatever we want to say that we, we, the adjectives that we pull out. And when you say like, who is this Julia Roberts and American sweethearts or something like that. And we yeah. want to describe them in this one. I thought they were just going to be like, well, it's because it's about two sharks. It's just showing how smart they are. They're like mm-hmm. Harvard educated. That was enough for me watching this movie. And for that's like how a rom-com for an oceans 11, like if it was Julie Roberts and George Clooney doing a very similar scene from that franchise, yeah. that would be the only level, right? It would just be, look how they're flirting, but also being dangerous. So it's like, <laughs> yeah. So it's like, it's not only in my argument, it's not only doing a better version of the trope, mm-hmm. but it's almost playfully kind of like going back to Ebert. I think it actually does succeed in this. And I don't think Ebert was saying that because he didn't feel that this one nailed it for him, like Fargo. Because mm-hmm. Ebert said, like, Fargo is the best movie of all time or something. Or he's like, he rides that, that icy huge. Fargo dick hard. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Scribed on his tombstone. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, let's pause so the audience can imagine that. Yeah. Deceased, overweight film critic Roger Ebert yeah, right. riding an ice penis. Please continue. <laughs> uh, it's it's just, it's very, uh, it's playful in that regard, but I think it's also the puppeteer and the ventriloquist. Like, they are kind of poking that, at, they're noticing that irony to such an extent that it's almost like, do you, I don't understand though, Coens, do you hate rom-coms? Do you hate movies? <laughs> I think that was something that I want to bring up is I think, the Coens just need a set of rules. I think like I you think and me, so. we're the same. Yeah. They literally just enjoy the process. And even though some movies hew closely to what they happen to really believe, as long as you give them like an a priori set of rules, mm-hmm. what they're interested in is getting to know the rules, living in the universe, completing the process, and then moving to a new universe. So even though our strong impression is, if you said to the Coens, do you believe love and first sight exists? They'd go... <laughs> 
No, that's fucking stupid. Mm-hmm. If you say, can you make a movie within a universe where love at first sight exists, yeah. they'll make intolerable they'll like, cruelty for yeah, you. It's yeah, fine. Yeah. They can do whatever you need them to do. Right. They, they, <laughs> their, their political thought about that like trope or that event or that observation of human nature is seemingly irrelevant to them. It's because, like us, they are uh, yeah. filmmaking robots. <laughs> Uh, excellent double takes from Clooney all throughout this movie. I mean, he's king of double take. At this uh, yeah. Point. Between this and oh brother, yeah. he's got getting, like at least 18 takes <laughs> him getting punched by Walthrop. So good. Wait, when is that? Oh, oh, you're talking to no brother. Oh, yeah, brother, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just, <laughs> um, yeah, because it's the structure is so transparent. I actually think if you are an aspiring screenwriter, it's a good one to analyze. Yeah. Take a stopwatch. And it's got a two. It's got multiple twists, twists, uh, definitely, be a little less intense on act three because they did, they did like we mentioned, it was important to them that they had it so that the prenup is eaten once and then ripped up twice, you know, like by different people. Uh, That's because they wanted to show off, like, look at all of our, you know, like Raymond Chandler. Well, we introduced the MacGuffin. So we're going to hit the MacGuffin eight times. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so they did that and it's not necessary for your screenplay or everyone's screenplay. I think that TLC is necessary for any screenplay, but you know, it's a, it's a really good uh, one to look at because it's like we talked about the trope is so unmysterious and clear. Uh, I did wanted to bring up the question of how do you think it aged in a post like Harvey Weinstein, Louis C.K. world, uh, and with to modern sensibilities, because it's funny that not only is it, of course, from 2003, but it is trying to echo mm-hmm. an even earlier time when maleness being like, like obviously it's kind of crass, and you hope it's just tongue in cheek to go like, you hope they're not trying to make it global. Here's our universe: all the women are gold diggers, all the men are sharks. You know how women and men are. You know what I mean? Right. Um, uh, And it doesn't bother me because it's such a cartoon. But I do still think considering that even though the movie feels 50s-ish, it is set in modern day. Yeah. There is shit he does that I just want to call out as like, man, if I tried that shit tonight. (laughs) Men are from Mars, women from Venus kind of shit. Ordering for the woman. When you don't know each other, it's your first yeah. date order. I I'll, hate that. She'll take the He says, I'll beef. have the beef. She'll yeah. have the beef. And then he has to ask, oh, I assume you're a carnivore. And she says, oh, Mr. Massey, you have no idea. Great line. Not a good date maneuver. No. But it's interesting to me that this movie plays it like, look how fucking, like, are you not getting wet, ladies? George Clooney knows how to treat a woman. Yeah. Like, these used to be the things the man is supposed to do, right? Yeah. He holds her chair out for her. He orders for her. But, dude, if I ordered Jen's dinner for her, she'd be like, I want a onion rings, dude. not the mashed potatoes, you dipshit. Yeah. What, what the fuck are we in, Mad Men? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, she admits that she's just doing, which is terrible strategy. At that dinner, while the case is going on, she freely admits she only married Rex Rexroth for his money. Right. Um, but that's just to lead to, yet again, witty flirt banter, which is, oh, a man hater, eh? And she says, I do think this is a genuinely great line. People don't go on safari because they hate animals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's a great, it's a good line. Yeah. And then this whole exchange is really good. Ah, I see. So like me, what you're living for is the thrill of the hunt. And then she explains in a longer line. I'm not going to quote. She doesn't f- 
see it that way. She sees it as her being in a disadvantaged position as a woman, and she needs to nail this guy's ass so that she can finally have wealth, which equals independence and safety. Um, and then he says, well, as for my part, I'm just looking or like you. Cause she says, and I am going to nail his ass, make my, no mistake. And he goes, I guess we are more alike than we thought. Like you, I'm just looking for an ass to mount. And she says, well, don't look at mine. Fine flirtation banter. Dude, if you went into court and said, the opponent's lawyer took me to dinner and made a joke that implied having anal sex with me. Mm-hmm. You win the case. Like he would be disbarred. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she had an ace in her upper sleeve right there. Dude. Right. right. <laughs> that's that. Yeah. That's that mattress. Man. Um, I like that. They yell Rex sit, even though it's a stupid joke. Yeah. Rex sit when the judge comes in. It's um, nice. And I, so, yeah, I'm doing some, just the, again, nowhere near, the number of hit lines as let's say raising Arizona, but right. I want to call out the few that are no, there's um, Heinz, the Varen Klaus von Espy plays with his dog for a while. Cause the dog won't stop barking. And I know this isn't a classic joke, but it's still got me. Then something else that is important happens right after. And they go court transcriber. Can you please read that back? And she goes, Dog barking sound. Oh, bones, bones. Oh, little sweetie, do you want the bones? Does anyone have those bones? Those little milk bones for the teeth? Those little dog bones? <laughs> like, that's the transcript. Yeah, she thought, because <laughs> yeah. she's just doing her robotic job. She just <laughs> yeah. always goes back 10 lines. Yeah. But, like, everyone's not. No, and, no, that's not the part we wanted. Uh, and then she goes, no, 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 repeat that last part. And this is the pun we were thinking of at the top. She goes, what kind of man did he want? And he says, she wanted the man she could, how you say, make the hammer on his fanny. <laughs> That's the nail your ass pun that I nail like so ass. much. Yeah. yeah, obviously also the other great pun is he's speaking at the No Man Conference, mm. which is, uh, I believe, the National Organization for Matrimonial Attorneys Nationwide, yeah. which is already a joke because it's national and nationwide. <laughs> but... Their slogan is, let no man tear asunder, which is at some wedding, traditional weddings, they say, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder. And their slogan is, yeah, we'll do it. We'll tear it asunder. We'll tear it asunder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good joke. Because um, that's just written on the back. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's on their seal. On their seal, yeah. yeah. Uh, more legally is jokes. Let the record show the Baron Klaus von Espy has indicated that Rex Rexroth is the silly man. (laughs) Rex jumps over the bench and tries to strangle Klaus while yelling, I'm not a bad man. I just love trains. I I love love trains. (laughs) And you can hear, I only caught it this time because of subtitles on, but the Baron goes, if you please, sir, not my larynx. <laughs> like, don't don't what? damage my larynx. <laughs> Just and that's when it comes. Freddie Bender, objection, Your Honor, strangling the witness. Mm, I'm going to allow it. <laughs> allow it. Yeah. Never fucking. You never have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, obscene wealth becomes you. I do think is a very cute flirt line that he throws at Catherine Zeta in oh, yeah. Vegas. Obscene wealth becomes you. Oh, his speech is called nailing your spouse's assets. Yeah. I wrote it down. Um, that might take me out of pedagogy other than I think I totally, it went over my head the first time, the whole Simon and Garfunkel thing. Carter Burwell obviously had a strategy there. Because when he asked, uh, at her wedding to Billy Bob, her fake wedding, they play April Come She Will, 
like the priest sings it and plays it on acoustic mm-hmm. guitar. And then they play an instrumental vision, version of it. And it's not Paul Simon. It's specifically Simon and Garfunkel. I'm playing instrumental Simon and Garfunkel song, sometimes in the score. I don't know exactly what it means. Yeah. My one thought is, and this could be a real reach, a really famous Simon and Garfunkel song is uh, Richard Corey, which is kind of the same structure as this plot. Uh, you got rich and you have the mansion and you have the yacht. And why do you still feel empty inside? Mm. That's Richard Corey as well, is just that plot in a two-minute song. I love that. Well, yeah. So I just think it's George Clooney is supposed to be almost a magically perfect, desirable man in this. And I actually think it shows how times changed that some things he does and says, by modern standards, are very dislikable. And uh, it's really the story. This is the story of George Clooney being rewarded no matter what he does. Mm Mm-hmm. Being in love, not being in love, trying to win, not trying to win, calling out a hit, stopping the hit. It's just always going to work out for George Clooney. Right. He, uh, <laughs> they've totally disassociated motive and tactic uh, from each other in this, in that like his tactics won't often make him the worst monster, but his motives are usually in like monstrous places. Like He's breaking up and ruining people's lives as a day job. Uh, even especially when they don't deserve it, and other times he's hiring hitmen to kill people right. and breaking into people's houses. So maybe it's like the good place, or like you know, he's not—he really isn't supposed to be fully likable. No, and I'll buy but, that because he's not. But I like, uh, like some peak, uh, like white rich white dude stuff happens right. that I do think is funny. Like when he goes, "Love is good," and that's why I'm quitting to do um. I don't know, pro bono legal work in um, East Los Angeles or one of those other, uh, you know, bad areas. Yeah, <laughs> I think like, he says just, I think he says East one Los of those Angeles. Other, or one of those and other, trails and off. then he trails off. Yeah. But the implication is like, you know, where the poor people are, I yeah. guess I'll, I'll, I'll help Something them. that people would like, uh, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. people who don't like me normally. Uh, she won't suffer, will she? Not unless you pay extra. Simple but good line. Oh, and then I love the moment where he and Wrigley realize they can't kill her is uh, Wrigley goes, oh my God, we've got to cancel the hit. Why would you kill the only woman you've ever loved? He goes, you're right, you're right, because she's rich now, and and I love her. (laughs) (laughs) Which makes you question, like, no, I think he really does love her, though. Yeah, Yeah, it's strange how they actually pulled that off. Yeah. Because... um, because he tries to on pa- paper crazy. on paper yeah. he is just a horrible horrible monster and i that means that he is a horrible horrible monster <laughs> right he gets all the things at he's the end he's just that charming he's just and the world is cartoonish guy. enough that you can assume the really bad things are like that was just a right, joke right. you know which yeah uh and then i really like how they both encounter a rang rang at the same time if you don't know what that is uh, in Cat's Cradle, the Vonnegut novel, it's one of the Bokanonism terms. A rang rang is someone who is uh, exemplifies a path you were thinking of going down and is such a mess that it turns you away from that path. So they have back-to-back scenes where he is invited into the office to meet the head of the firm, who's this grotesque skeletor, like a mm-hmm. 105-year-old man, changing his colostomy bag while he's talking to him. Uh which, by the way, keep that scene in mind for Bur- or for uh, Serious Man. Man. Yeah. So it's, similar. It looks like it's shot in the same place. Yeah. Uh, and then in the very next scene, she encounters her friend who's so lonely she's, she's going to have a heart attack tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. 
exactly. or die of loneliness or appendicitis. I forget. Yeah, one of those. Um, so yeah, I thought that was neat. But do you have any any comment on? Do you think at all it can? Can we lay any blame at the film's feet for the message kind of being like women are gold digging bitches and you really got to watch out? I mean, is I, that an issue? Uh, or are you like, whatever, it's a cartoon? I mean, I go back and forth with it because it, none of it is like mean spirited. Everyone is bad. Uh, I do recognize that keeping that trope alive is like a bad thing, but there are people who do this, you know, like, so it's not, yeah. it's not like a, I wouldn't call it a stereotype. You know, so I don't feel it's the need very to fight against class it. Class of people, because yeah. it's yeah. Um, and then, in addition to everything else, for non-logical reasons, just like the rich people, I, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of terrible rich people who, and that is true that they appear to think like this. Yeah, or, and so I'm fine taking them down a peg. All right, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> so it's SJW approved. No, I guess. let's move on to our final spectra. Well, who? Who else but two cis hetero white males to approve or deny whether something is appropriate? Yeah, on uh, a podcast. <laughs> howdy do that, which is our little epilogue. It's a minor spectrum. Yeah. Um, but fun trivia, little tidbits, like mopping up the, you know, we finished the meal. All we have left is half a just, roll or we're mopping up that yeah, gravy. Yeah, just mopping <laughs> it up that gravy. With the- what'd, you th- what'd you get? What were your nuggets? So this guy, John Romano, was the author of... Uh, the third miracle, uh, which was what this is, this story intolerable cruelty is about. And I assume the third miracle is the third prenup rip up. Oh, you mean that was like a working yeah. title of a treatment version yeah. of this idea or something. And, uh, it got developed in this, and that's a book, uh, it got developed in a screenplay by, uh, Robert Ramsey and Matthew stone, not to be confused with Matt stone, Matt, different yeah, guy, not Trey Parker and Matt yeah, stone, not South park, uh, guy. who wrote big trouble with Baron Sonnenfeld. In 2002, and Baron Sonnenfeld was big trouble. Used to be the DP of the Coen Brothers. Big Trouble, a bad movie mm-hmm. adapted from a Dave Barry novel. Who you know, Dave Barry is the guy who writes funny short articles like Andy Rooney style about right. how life in Florida is weird. Dude, I highly recommend his novel Big Trouble. The book, the book is great, and the movie version's right. mediocre. Right, uh, and Matthew Stone wrote the screenplay for life in 1999 who directed by the uh, space Ted horror Denny. movie. Uh, no, 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 no. The, the other yeah. Oh, Oh really? Yeah. The life in prison with Eddie Murphy. I think so. I love that. I think that movie is also crazy yeah. under underrated. Life um, is funny, but I was just it's pointing fun. out because these are two guys that are working like, so we have, it's already an adaptation. You have two writers who are working on it and they're both like, they're not co-writers. They're two people who are brought in, in right. a kind of an arranged marriage. It wasn't themselves. crazy this movie got made. Yeah. It was like always being shepherded safely through the process. Yeah. And then the Coen <laughs> brothers were added as two additional writers. So right. that's why there's four writers mm-hmm. uh, on this project when you see the credits. I still think maybe the only time the Coen brothers indulged in an animated credit sequence, which made it feel very studio driven. Mm-hmm. Coen brothers don't usually do like. Can we get some clip art of Cupid's shooting hearts while the credits roll? Yeah. That, it's, it's not their thing. It's, I mean, it's not entirely against their thing. It, it definitely felt like a Monty Python-esque. But I of. just... No, it's not against their, like, tastes, but I just it just occurred to me. Right. I can't think of a single other Coen Brothers movie, and I could be wrong, of course, in which case the internet will tell us, where the credit sequence is a thing. Like, where they... 
Man Who Wasn't There is just a shot of a barber pole, mm-hmm. and that could arguably they be usually a thing. Do like but a song usually it's over just footage, yeah. yeah, it's just credits going by over footage, so you don't notice them. It's like some transparency. Right. Shit. Uh, also about the poetry, Miles's line, his poem, the specific Christopher Marlowe poem is "Hero and uh, Leander," mm-hmm. who are Venus and Adonis, like analogs yeah it's exactly. even like tighter than that it's like it's just like they're almost copy they're almost uh remixes of the same poem right, <laughs> yeah, right. from which different is, people's points of view which is kind of like well known about because things would be, be in vogue you know like right like telling so the story of aphrodite doing this would be in vogue for five years we don't know why but for <laughs> yeah. some reason they would write similar plays at yeah. the same time It'd to kind of like, one-up each other i guess right or then we don't know and genre shit like someone would introduce like, it was a big deal when the first person was like, you know what? Instead of all this fantasy shit and Greek shit, I'm going to do Henry the Third Part One. Like, I'm going to do a historical drama. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just like modern day. It's like zombies, and then there's more zombie shit. It was a big hit, so other writers are like, I'm going to do a historical drama. Um, I also love Billy Bob Thornton talks really fast in this movie because he talks so slow, slow. the man who yeah, wasn't there. True. And uh, IMDb pointed this out, not my gleaning. They do that. They like to do that. The clearest other example being they did the same thing with Steve Buscemi between Big Lebowski and Fargo. Right, right. He's talking constantly. So I do think if they're going to use someone again immediately, they wanted them to show range. Right. It seems important to them. I don't know why. I think it's just because they know they they figure out someone's super talented and they get to know them and they're like, ah, we should make another. Yeah. We should show their range because that's really good for uh, their career and. They're, we want to work with them again, but yeah. we don't want to ask them to do the same thing. Um, that's very smart. <laughs> the only other one I got is uh, when Wheezy Joe shoots himself through the head, the bullet goes through the window behind him, and the bullet hole is a heart. Uh, <laughs> of course. So pointless. So pointless. <laughs> yeah. uh, you got they, anything else? They, The coen brothers movie that never happened and i'm sure there's several that we don't know of but Mm -hmm. the one we do know is their the production fell through and the reason why they accepted this job is that there was another movie and if you want to read i don't know if they have a script of it anywhere that you can track down on the internet but the name of it is to the white sea and it's a book written by james dickey so i'm you know, if you're interested to the White Sea, to the wall, getting that to the sweat strips <laughs> down my diggy. <laughs> yeah, it's about that's about it's it. The white whale. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's, it's Moby Dick. It's Moby because Dick. it is all made of stars. All right. We're done now. <laughs> yeah, I didn't mean to get off on an SJW thing. It's just that the only other women who appear are like Harley Quinn. They're like Catherine Zeta-Jones exists. All the other women that you see in the movie are basically just the one woman who's the sex slave in the court mm-hmm. scene, and then Rex Rexroth with six women women who are naked, and when he dies, they go, What's the matter, Rexy? And I was just like, no like killer female roles. But you're yeah. right that George Clooney also sucks it though. Does, that does, does bo- make it okay. The, it does yeah. bother me. It does bother me, but it also is like it would bother me a lot more if every so every woman in this movie is either a victim or a monster. Yeah. And it, it would bother me more if if it weren't for the fact that every man in this is also is a also victim or a monster. Or a monster yeah. So, uh, but yeah, it's not a great trope. <laughs> All right. Uh, 
I like it. Abe thinks it's decent. Yeah. Hope you enjoyed the episode. <laughs> Next time we're covering Lady Killers, which will be really interesting because probably 75% of Cohen's fans consider it their worst film. I don't, so I'm very excited. I'm gonna dip into it. J.K. Simmons, mm-hmm. fucking Marlon Wayans. Yeah, star-studded once again. We'll get into it. Until next time. Cohen Brothers. Smallbeans.bigcartel.com. The Clothing Brothers Brothers shirt for sale now. <laughs>